According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 17. We uh, got our first look at Proverbs 17 last week. Got our second look coming up here today. A couple of items just to... uh, as we get started, there will be some Wednesdays in May that we will not be here on Wednesday morning. So just be aware of that. Um, I believe I'm going to attend Jerry McFerrin's service on May 1st. Uh, it's a military burial and on Wednesday morning. And then uh, for the Kiev trip, there will be, it'll affect at least one, possibly two, uh, for the trip to Ukraine. So We'll, as we get closer, we'll lock down those details and, and make sure we get an email out to let you know. All right. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Dealt with that last week, the introduction then to chapter 17. We really covered two verses. We covered verse 1 and 2 last week. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. So that's where we were a week ago. We'll pick it up here this morning with verse 3. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests the heart. Thank God for that. Let's get started with a word of prayer, asking our Father for His faithfulness to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, and Father, um, asking for the Word of God as it goes forth today to be clear, to be accurate, to be powerful, that we would learn it, that we would accept it. And I thank you, Father, that when we receive the Word of God with humility and we receive it implanted, where it is able to save our souls. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, picking up where we were, Chapter 17 begins with a better than proverb, a better than proverb. And there's a, there's a number of these. Uh, we were introduced to them already uh, back in chapter 15. Uh, slightly different than the usual contrast that we have in the Hebrew poetry uh, for most of the proverbs where you have an A part and a B part and uh, they're either connected with an and or they're connected with a but statement depending on whether they're synonymous or they're antithetical. Uh, In these, though, we have uh, a uh, contrast that's being made, and in some cases the contrast is is uh, is weird. The contrast does not uh, does not make sense because why would a dry morsel be better than a feast? You know, I mean, under any circumstances, like ninety nine point nine nine percent of all the circumstances you can imagine, uh, any one of us would take the feast and not take the dry morsel. Who who wants that? Well. That's when the, you look to the other part of the, of the uh, parallelism to realize, oh, well, when you put those details in there, like um, strife uh, versus quietness, okay, well, then now I'll agree with you at this point because you put it in the context where really the contrast is not a dry morsel or a feast. The contrast is the quietness of, uh, of the life that we have in the Word of God versus the strife that comes when your life is not transformed by the Word of God. And so that, uh, I think, plays out. And it plays out uh, also in Proverbs 15 when you look at those uh, details as well. All other circumstances being equal, a house full of feasting is better than a dry morsel. 
And, and you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone to dispute that. All other circumstances being equal. Quietness is so superior to strife that it can make a dry morsel superior to a house full of feasting. And that's what we glean when we look at the, at the poetry here and we look at the, the logic of, of what Solomon is presenting in this better than um, uh, proverb. And uh, it, it bears out too, by the way, we can make the same exact statements in Proverbs 15 with the two examples that we have there, verse 16 and verse 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. And so uh, remove the circumstances out of that verse and just look at the two things being compared, uh, having you know no money, being broke, having little financially, or uh, having, um, I lost my verse, verse 16, great treasure. All right, so which would you rather have? Would you rather have little or would you rather have great treasure? See, well, all other circumstances being equal, it's preferable to have great treasure. It's preferable to have more in the bank than less in the bank. See, all, all other circumstances being equal. However, and again we look at the circumstances now and we say the fear of the Lord is so superior to not having the fear of the Lord, right? The, living a life without the Word of God, to live a life without the fear of the Lord in, in your Christian walk. Uh, the fear of the Lord is so superior to the absence of the fear of the Lord that it makes poverty superior to prosperity. It makes having little superior to great treasure. That's the, uh, the application. Same thing in verse 17. Um, take away the circumstances and you realize if you're, if you're just going to compare the two items in isolation, the two items uh, in, uh, in all other circumstances being equal, well then uh, meat is better than vegetables. Because um, it says better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. And so the better than is, is contrasting uh, the vegetable plate, you know, the Luby's vegetable plate versus the, um, the, the ox, the, fatted, the fattened ox. Okay, So all other circumstances being equal, that's kind of weird. Who, who would want vegetables when they could have this fattened ox? Right? Well, all other things are not equal because the proverb actually puts the contrast then on uh, the, the details here, the um, love versus hatred, right? And so, oh, okay, well now if you're going to put those circumstances into the equation, then we flip it upside down. We say, okay, under that circumstance then, a love, the love of God is so superior to hatred that if that's the situation we're looking at, then I'll take the vegetable plate any day, right? I will, I will clearly take the vegetable plate because it's not worth the price, it's not worth uh, the hatred in order to have the, uh, what would otherwise be superior. And so this is the, the effect here as we go through these better than Proverbs. And I think it's important too that we recognize when, when Proverbs is giving us one of these better than statements, it's not saying that either one of those other things is, is intrinsically wrong in and of itself. Poverty, there's nothing wrong with being poor. There's nothing wrong with vegetables. There's nothing wrong with uh, these, these other contrasts that we're making. The, uh, the contrast is, uh, is putting it in that perspective so that we, we can relate it appropriately. All right. 
We also spent some time last week talking about shalva, the quietness and the ease. We want to make sure that it's the sanctified shalva, that it's the godly shalva. We want to be at peace. We don't want to um, we don't want to take Satan's counterfeit form of this because this is such a blessing. It is a blessing. Quietness or ease is a blessing when it comes with God's peace. And so you could think of that as the shalom, the peace of God, the spiritual peace, and then you can think of the quietness then as your temporal life, quietness and circumstances. Um, and, and we want both. Uh, but what is it worth it really to have temporal life tranquility if you don't have the peace of God, if you don't have the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding? This, the, this then becomes the snare. Satan's counterfeit uh, quietness, I call it a pseudo-quietness, it's a carnal complacency. It's a carnal complacency. It's not coming from the Lord. And it's, uh, it happens a lot when uh, believers decide to compromise. They, they decide to make a poor decision and compromise uh, simply because they want peace in their house. They want peace in their marriage. They want tranquility. They're tired of the, of the conflict. And so they just cave in. They surrender. And they compromise. And they say, fine. And just in order to gain a little tranquility, they, uh, they make poor decisions, biblically speaking. And then, then they've blown it all then they, they have neither peace nor tranquility. They don't have the peace of God. They don't have the real peace. They have the counterfeit peace. And, and that's why Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Because when, when the world is providing you its pseudo-quietness, its pseudo-tranquility, its pseudo-peace, it's, uh, it's always the, the, the satanic snare that uh, comes with that, those pri- that price you just don't want to pay. Also eschatologically this term is descriptive of Israel at their greatest risk. When the nation has tranquility, when the nation has that carnal complacency they embrace it because they want to. They embrace it because they're craving peace, peace, but there is no peace. And uh, at those moments eschatologically we know from Daniel 8, Daniel 11, Ezekiel 38, that is when the nation is at the greatest risk. That's when the attack comes in that requires a divine miracle to, uh, to rescue them. All right, so that was verse 1. And then in verse 2, we were contrasting the servant with the son and uh, realizing that the son might be so wicked that he gets written out of the will, and the servant might be so faithful that he gets emancipated and he gets uh, adopted as a son, if you will, in terms of being given an inheritance equal to the brothers. And uh, so the contrast of a servant and a son, it really does communicate amazing things not only in the Old Testament but in the New Testament as well. We had a whole uh, chapter of the introduction then to uh, Galatians that was dealing with, uh, it was in Galatians 4, dealing with the, the servant and the son. And, and that was, became the venue to teach some important principles as related to law and grace. <clears throat> the point was made back in Proverbs 11, family trouble reflects a wisdom deficiency and carries an inheritance consequence. And uh, one of the great benefits you have if your family is a Christian family and it's in the Word of God and you're training your children up from childhood, from their youth to have a reverence for the Word of God is that wisdom will then uh, have an effect that will be a blessing to the household, to the family. And uh, applications there. All right. Moving on then to verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. God's testing processes are akin to smelting operations. God's testing processes are akin to smelting operations. 
And I like the fact that it uses two different metaphors. It uses two illustrations for us so we don't get wrapped up in the, meta- in the metaphor. There's the refining pot on the one hand and then there's the furnace on the other hand. And those are separate issues, different devices, different uh, methods or techniques as far as an open pot is concerned or as far as a closed furnace goes. Either way, uh, don't get lost in the details because we have a similar uh, testing process that we go through personally as well as corporately, nationally, or corporately in terms of a local church as well. I don't think I added that to the slide, but it is worth considering that there is a testing process that applies corporately as well to the local church in addition to the nation or the community that we're looking at. All right, so um, again, the, the, the parallelism is an A part with a B part, and we have uh, an illustration here. Uh, the, the refining pot and the furnace as the illustration for us in the testing. The Lord tests hearts. That's what we can anticipate. And we can anticipate when He's testing us that the experience will be similar to the refining pot or to the furnace that it's going to be uh, a lot of heat that's applied. Uh, in both cases, both with, with the refining pot and the furnace, heat is applied. And it's the heat that allows for the impurities to be removed. And that's the same thing in our testing. The heat of our testing allows the impurities to be removed. And uh, both in time and in eternity. Because the biggest example of this is what happens after we die is the judgment seat of Christ when the fire hits our production and again the impurities are removed and what remains is, uh, is purified. Same thing with us in time when we go through our temporal life testing. Concept will come back again in Proverbs 27. This is in the segment of the book that was added during the days of Hezekiah. Proverbs 27, 21. And that's, that's interesting too, by the way, and I know we've talked about it. The idea that when Solomon died, the form of the book of, of Proverbs, as we understand it, that the book of Proverbs had the form of what we would take as chapters 1 through 24. That was the book of Proverbs in the canon at the death of Solomon. It was only later then that the uh, chapter 25 and following uh, got added to the collection of Solomon's Proverbs and then compiled into its canonical form. All right, Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded him. Each is tested by the praise accorded him. So now there is a detail that comes out. And it's curious to me um, whether the praise is ahead of time or after the fact. And uh, I'm glad I've got uh, 10 more chapters before we get here and I've got to make up my mind and figure out uh, how I understand this verse. Because I don't understand this verse yet. And I know I've, I've been chewing on this for a long, long time. Uh, each is tested. And that's that, that verb is tested is kind of supplied to try to make sense out of it Uh, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and each by the praise accorded him. And I think we can probably do better than supply is tested. I think we can have a better uh, expression in there to to convey the sense of this. Each by the praise accorded him. And uh, in any event, we can recognize that yes, once 
we are approved, then there's praise that goes with that. There's praise, there's well done, good and faithful servant. There's praise that comes to the approved one. There's praise that comes, and it comes from God. Each, each man's praise comes from God because God, it's the grace of God that brought us through the test. It's the grace of God that, that worked in us to produce the praise. And so we can't even boast in, in the praise that comes because we know that it's, it's by grace that the praise is even there. So I think the praise after the testing process is a given, but as I look at the Hebrew here and as I look at this text, I start to think that, wait a minute, the praise itself is the test. The praise itself is the venue in which we, our faith is, is tested, whereby how are we going to handle that praise? How do we handle the, the accolades? How do we handle the prosperity? And how do we handle the, 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 those kind of things? And so when, uh, when you're being praised, when you're being prosperous, when your life is going well, uh, that becomes the furnace. That becomes the crucible. That becomes the venue in which the testing can take place, if you read it that way. So the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and each by the praise accorded him. Each. The crucible and the furnace? Or the silver and the gold? How are we going to exegete this? How are we going to handle this? Okay, So like I said, I'm just teasing you this morning. I don't know how long it'll take us to get 10 more chapters through Proverbs, but uh, at some point I want to understand all of that verse. But when the praise comes in, that does become a test. There's no question that how do you, how do you respond to the praise? Does it go to your head? Do you get full of yourself? Do you walk around in your roof like Nebuchadnezzar and gaze out over the glories of Babylon and say, boy, I'm a great guy. Look at, the, look at this Babylon which I have built, see. And if, you, if, if that's how you're going to respond to greatness and to praise, then, uh, then you're headed for judgment. God knows how to humble those who walk in pride, and He does so uh, consistently. All right. Such testing is both personal and corporate. God's testing processes, the testing process in your life that is likened to a smelting operation, it is both personal and corporate. We find a great example of the personal testing in Psalm 26. And we find great examples of the corporate testing in uh, Psalm 66, Zechariah, and Malachi. So let's look at these, starting with Psalm 26 2. All right, Psalm 26. Sometimes you got to sort through. The uh, Bible publisher put a little blurb in there that says, protestation of integrity and prayer for protection. All right, that's not God-breathing inspired. That's from the New American Standard people, the, the Lockman Foundation that publishes the New American Standard Bible. That's not God-breathed. We can overlook that. Uh, but then when it says a Psalm of David, that is in the Hebrew manuscripts, all right? So that is there. And it's usually versed as verse 1, and then what we think of as verse 1 is usually versed as verse 2. Uh, in, in many cases, that's what happens. In any event, this is a Davidic Psalm, as per the inscription. It says, vindicate me, O Lord, vindicate me, and, uh, or judge me. You know, be my judge. I don't mind if you're my judge. You are my judge. You're my judge anyway, so man, judge. <laughs> okay? 
Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So here's a believer, faith in Christ, with an ongoing experiential sanctification, with an ongoing walk by faith. And, and we would, to put this in our vocabulary from the New Testament, I have trusted in the Lord. He has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has eternal life. He's a believer. But he's also walked that way. He's also conducted his walk on a faith basis. I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. And so now he's inviting this process to take place. And all of these expressions, vindicate me, examine me, try me, test Test my mind and my heart. And so this is what it is. And it's not just a simple one time through by virtue of the fact that we have the the variety of these words being used to vindicate, to uh, examine, to try and to test. The fact that we have this variety of expressions means he's not just looking at it once. Look at it a second time. Look at it a third time. Give it a thorough examination. And you'll observe my mind and my heart is uh, what we'll see in the second point. The standard for evaluation is the internal heart motive, not the external deeds. It's going to be the internal heart motive, not the external deeds. Okay, And uh, we'll get to that when we get to point B. But it's, it's highlighted here, so I don't mind putting it on the screen and letting you look at it. Letting you write it down. As soon as there's a new screen on there, you start writing and you stop listening. That's all right. The standard for evaluation is the internal heart motives, not the external deeds. Because external deeds can be faked. And in fact, a legalist can outdo a grace guy just by virtue of his, of his hyperlegalism. And so, you know, you decide to be a hyperlegalist and do all this other stuff, and, and, uh, and you can outdo the next guy, but your heart motives are entirely all wrong. So, what are you really producing? Nothing. When God examines that, He's going to burn it up at the judgment seat of Christ, and there's less than nothing there. Because not only are you not serving the Lord, the opportunity cost of failing to serve the Lord means there were other rewards that should have been yours, it's just you weren't doing them. Those other works you should have been doing, but you weren't doing them because you were too busy being a legalist, doing all this other garbage, see. And so yes, there's the loss of reward for what you were doing, wasting your time. But then there's the opportunity cost that just compounds what you lost beyond that. Because you weren't doing what you should have been doing. What He designed you to do. What He designed you to do. Well, we'll talk about that some more as well. Alright. Well, this is um, personal. And so I think it's a great illustration of personal. It's also a great illustration that God is not a respecter of persons. Because in fact David is the king when he's inviting this, uh, inviting this examination. And so there's no one that's above uh, criticism, no one that's above discernment, that uh, everyone gets examined. There's no exemptions to this, even if you're the king or if you're the pastor or you're whoever you think you are and you think you're somehow exempt from being uh, judged. We're all being judged. That's uh, because all judgment has been given to the Son. He is the one that uh, with whom we have to do. So that's... Uh, that's important. All right. We also have corporate testing. And by corporate testing, we mean not just a single person, but a body of people, a collective body of people. Corporate testing. We're not talking about, you know, United States businesses. When I say corporate testing, we're talking about the, the corporate body. And in, in our case, it's the church or the political body that we're associated with. 
our nation, our state, our community. The corporate testing of Israel, for example, in Psalm 66 and verse 10, it's corporate testing. Psalm 66 and verse 10. All right, Psalm 66 for the choir director, a song, a psalm. Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of His name, make His praise glorious. You know, this is a psalm that you would like for Israel to have sung repeatedly in their history, and I think they rarely did. I think Israel was rarely in a place where they were a righteous nation having a, a salt and light benefit to the Gentile nations around them. Only in, uh, in some random periods of their history when they had a good king, when they had a, a spiritual uh, revival. For most of the Old Testament, Israel was pretty, pretty idolatrous and, and, and impacted by the, the fallen Gentile nations around them. But in the millennium, of course, they will be the faithful nation. They will have uh, His law written on their hearts. They will be uh, the faithful nation. And so uh, this is, we can view this even as a millennial fulfillment as they are inviting the Gentile nations globally to worship like they're worshiping in, uh, in the proper way. Say to God, how awesome are your works. That's verse 3. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. And this is an expression that's used repeatedly uh, with respect to the uh, submission David experienced when he conquered his enemies, but Jesus will experience this as well in the millennium, where they submit because they have to but their heart doesn't really want to. And so they fake it. And they show up and they give external deeds. They give external observances for a time until they get bold and they stop doing that even after a time. But the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is a time of feigned obedience. That's why He has to rule them with a rod of iron because they may be obeying but it's, it's, a, it's a show. And they're, they're conspiring to try to get away from the, the, the throne of David. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in His deeds towards the Son of Man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There, there let us rejoice in Him. He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So in the second verse of this psalm there's uh, again more indication that uh, he's, he's keeping an eye on them, that they're rebellious, they want to rebel, that feigned obedience is starting now to, to have discussions, right? Psalm 2 says, uh, why are the, the kings of the earth are in an uproar, the nations, they're taking a conspiracy against God. Then verse 8, bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. This is a corporate application. And this is really how Israel can celebrate the fact that they survived the tribulation. That, uh, that, that He brought them through the judgment and now a redeemed people is in the land of blessing. And uh, was, it, was it fun at the time? Of course it's not fun at the time. All discipline does not seem joyful at the time, but afterwards for those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And there's a, there's a glory to that. So there's the corporate trying. You have tried us, O God. 
And, and I would put forth that we have corporate testing as well in a local assembly. Every lampstand is going to go through corporate testing, collective testing together as we identify as a flock, and we'll go through church testings together. <coughs> Excuse me. That we'll have corporate testing as a congregation, we'll have corporate testing um, in our marriages and our families. There's going to be corporate testing there. There's corporate testing that happens in our workplace blessing by association or cursing by association. There's corporate testing in our communities, in our state, in our nation as uh, God applies His evaluation to His people. And it goes on. Um, I don't know that I'll read the whole thing here, but after after verse uh, 10, you have tried us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. So it wasn't an accident. You had us exactly where you wanted us. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. You know, this is, uh, this is the way it goes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, I don't want to go there. You have to go there. He's taking you there. And He's bringing you through the other side. You can't get to the other side if you don't go through it. You know, Try to go around, try to get there some other way. Not His plan. He's taking you where He wants you. And so that becomes important as well. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows. Alright, well it goes on. We'll let that go for now. Psalm 66, it's a great millennial psalm. How about Zechariah 13? Zechariah 13. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Right there at the end of the Old Testament. He's considered a minor prophet, but boy, he's got 14 chapters. I wonder if he was ever insulted by that. Alright, Zechariah 13. And so we don't confuse this. In that day, in that day, Another context here that goes back to chapter 12. But in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Mm. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets of the unclean and the unclean spirits from the land. And so there's coming a day when this will happen. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. As much as it's uh, maybe frustrating that uh, you know that um, we have uh, false religions in our country, well, we got freedom in our country, and I'm thankful for that freedom. Now we have Christian churches, and we also have non-Christian. We've got other. I'm fine with that. We've got freedom in this country, and the idea that well, we're going to just end that, and we're going to start to revoke. Uh, these these religions, and you can't have a mosque anymore. You can't have a, a Hindu temple anymore. You can't have a you know whatever you know. Pick your uh, Buddhist whatever. Um, no, we want to have all of it because we have the freedom to have our churches and to have our worship of Jesus Christ in our land of freedom. All right. There will, however, come a day when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David, when there won't be any more mosques anywhere. All right. Because His name will be the only name. 
and uh, demonic religions and the, all these other false things are going to be done away with. But that's not for us to bring about, that's for Jesus to bring about. Got to be clear on that. All right. So in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, and if anyone still prophesies and his father and mother who gave birth to him shall say to him, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. We're not there yet either. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. And, but he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And when one says to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Man, there's a lot of doctrine in this chapter. Okay, verse 7. We're headed towards the millennium here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What's striking about this is that uh, the disciples, they didn't want this to happen. The disciples uh, even vowed, oh no, no, we won't let this happen. Oh no, no, we won't be scattered. Oh no, and Peter's like, I'll never deny you. (laughs) And Jesus says, are you kidding me? You're going to be scattered. He's trying to get him ready. This is the night in which he's betrayed. He says, you will be scattered. The shepherd is getting struck down. I'm going to go to the cross and die. And the disciples are like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you want to thwart the, the prophetic scripture. You want to call Jesus a liar. You want to insist on your plan being better than God's plan. Yeah, good luck with that. All right. I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. Now we're going from first advent to second advent and this two-thirds uh, execution, this is, this is going to happen in the tribulation. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested of all the persecutions the Jewish people have ever had, including the Holocaust, including the, the Nazi attempt to exterminate them, they have not seen anything comparable to what will happen in the, in the, under Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. What is in, in front of them is far more fierce than what anything the Jewish people have gone through before. Refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say the Lord is my God. They have to look upon him whom they pierced. When they call on his name, that's in the full recognition they're calling upon the Messiah whom they crucified the first time he came. Because he's the only Messiah. He is Messiah. And they have no other salvation but the Messiah that they crucified in his first advent. And when they can be humbled to call upon him, then he can come at second advent and rescue them. So there's corporate uh, testing there. Malachi. Zechariah Malachi. Malachi 3. Behold, I'm going to send Malachi. The Hebrew Malachi means my messenger. 
I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we've had applications of this fulfilled in John the Baptist, uh, fulfillments of this in the person of Elijah, eschatological Elijah when he comes. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? They want the king to come, they want the king to come, but who can endure it? Right? Because it's going to be a time of global wrath. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. There's another metaphor for you. Fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. You know, when Noah survived the flood and they got off the ark, what was the first thing they had to do? They had to offer offerings and sacrifices. They had actually brought clean animals with them, seven, so that when they were done with the flood, this is beyond the mating pairs of animals, they brought these animals on board so they could offer sacrifices when they survived the flood. What do you think Israel is going to do when they survive the tribulation? They're going to have sacrifices to make. Their Levitical priesthood is going to have offerings to make for having survived the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. All right, I will draw near to you for judgment. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. The judgment of Israel will precede the sheep and goat judgment of uh, the Gentile nations. All right, so there's Malachi 3. As we've seen now on a number of occasions, the standard for evaluation is the internal heart motives, not the external deeds. The standard for evaluation. So you can fool people, you can impress a human being, and uh, uh, human beings without omniscience uh, won't know, they'll be none the wiser, right? The pastor will be clueless in a sanctified ignorance. Uh, the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher does not give him capacity to look upon your heart and see the heart motivation for why you're doing the things you're doing. But God looks upon the heart. And at the judgment seat of Christ, those things get exposed. 1 Samuel 16, 7. I use this a lot. It's useful to use 1 Samuel 16 a lot. Um, I don't know if you're tired of reading it or not, but I never get tired of turning there. And it's worth pointing out that you say, well, this is a no-brainer. This is a duh. Everybody knows this. Come on. Let's get past it. Let's get to another point of doctrine here. This goes without saying. Well, Samuel is an old man. He's an old prophet. He's, uh, you think he would know this by now. It's worth the reminder that even if you are an old man, even if you have been in the Word of God for years, even if you've been a faithful prophet this whole time, you can still lose your focus and get impressed with what your eyes are looking at and you need God to remind you, wait a minute, God looks at the heart. Don't be impressed with what you're looking at. And Samuel, he was impressed when he saw the firstborn. When he goes to Bethlehem and he's meeting Jesse and he wants to meet Jesse's boys and And so they entered, and when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has to be the uh, Messiah of Yahweh, the anointed of the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Plain and simple, that's where it is. And you can put on a show and you can look good externally and be nasty. You can be full of, you know, your whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones in, uh, in those applications. All right. And so Jesse calls Abinadab. And here's the second one. And the Lord said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And here comes Shammah, the third one. And the Lord's not chosen this one either. So Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And you'll notice with each son that passed by, uh, Samuel quit making his own estimations. Samuel quit looking and quit even, he just kept waiting for the Lord to give the word. And because the Lord didn't give the word, he said, nope, not this one. The Lord didn't give the word, nope, not this one. So, so Samuel's done making an estimation. He's done trying to evaluate. He's done trying to look at things. And he just says, nope, the Lord hasn't picked this one. And now they're out of sons. Samuel said to Jesse, is this all? Are these all the children? And Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. I didn't even call for him. I didn't even think you wanted him. He's tending the sheep. So that kind of reflects Jesse's attitude too, right? Now here's another old man who should have perspective, should have wisdom. Didn't just leave the, you know, the, the runt of the litter out there. And I think they probably treated him like that. He wasn't a tall guy. So Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was, here's the appearance. Now God's not going to look at the appearance, but he describes the appearance for us in the Bible. He was ruddy. Meaning ruddy. Yeah. Kind of burnt, a little red from the sun. He's ruddy. Uh, With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is he. This is not, uh, you know, like um, the, the Shulamith in, in Song of Solomon, she just felt like she'd been outdoors so much and working in the garden and tending the flocks and been, you know, exposed to the sun and she wasn't as, uh, as tender and genteel and, and uh, pasty pale like the, 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 the rich girls, right? And the, the ones that live in the palaces, the ones that have all the, the perfume and the skincare treatments and all that other stuff. Um, so she, uh, you know, she was kind of self-conscious about that in Song of Solomon. Likewise, David, you know, he's not uh, the cultured. Um, he's he's been out there with the sheep, fighting lions and bears and doing all that. And uh, so the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him, for this is he." Not based upon his appearance, based upon his heart. God said He would select a man after His own heart, and that's. Um, that's significant. All right. First Chronicles 28 and verse 9. Here's some ones that we don't often look at. And uh, David's getting ready to die and he's giving final instructions to Solomon. And he's reviewing the fact that he wasn't allowed to build a temple in his lifetime. And um, he knows that Solomon will be the one that will be building it. 
Verse 3, God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom and of the Lord, of the Lord over Israel. Israel. So Solomon means peace, and this is the point. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me. I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as it is done now. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. Now as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. It can't be external, can't be lip service. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. And you know, you read these passages and you think, man, the end of Solomon's life was a train wreck. He dies the sin and the death. He marries a thousand women. And you just think, wow. He had this admonition before he took the throne and every advantage was given to him. So that ought to be an admonition. (laughs) You know, parents, the best parents in the world, the worst parents in the world, or somewhere in between, wherever you fall on the parenting spectrum, by the grace of God, you you do what you do. By the grace of God, you are what you are. And uh, you raise your kids and ground them in the Word of God, and then the Lord takes it from there. And uh, here's the, the wisest man who ever lived, and the end of his life is just tragic. And that should serve as an admonition for all of us. All right, Psalm 139. Another, for the choir director, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, for you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. And so we have evaluation, it's daily, and it's uh, the heart attitudes. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. It says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down are intimately acquainted with all my ways. There is nothing hidden from him. He knows it all. Down to the end of the psalm, verses 23 and 24, he he invites God to do more. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He's been doing it. Do it more. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. This is where David is inviting God to not only evaluate him but also to be intimately involved with what it is that he's struggling with, what it is that he's wrestling over. What it, I mean, anxious thoughts are what you're chewing on and, and considering. You know, I've got a, I've got a decision in front of me. I, I'm gonna, I gotta, the deadline's coming up. I've got to do this. Search me. Know me. Lead me in this right path. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. See if there be any hurtful way in me. I want my integrity to stand forth. And he's inviting that. I love the fact that he's inviting that 
that he doesn't have a hurtful way. He doesn't have one hurtful way in him at all. Even when in verse uh, 21 and 22 he spoke about his hatred for the Lord's enemies. Hatred is not hurtful. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And yet that's not a hurtful way. Because he says, try me. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We're supposed to have a sanctified hatred in our love for the Lord, a sanctified, bona fide hatred for that which stands opposed to God and apart from His Word. And it's, uh, it's not hurtful, it's sanctified. Jeremiah 17 and verse 10. You know it, you know it well. It destroys every Disney movie out there. The old follow your heart uh, advice. If the Disney princesses are trying to tell your daughter to follow their heart, then uh, you got to overrule that with divine viewpoint. Because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. <laughs> Who can know it? God can know it. God can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God searches the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. After the uh, judgment seat of Christ passage of chapter 3 with the gold, silver, precious stones and all that, it continues on into chapter 4. I think in some ways the chapter division is unfortunate. Um, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The Lord, the one who examines me is the Lord. That's who we're working for. Don't forget who you're working for. You know, who do I answer to as a pastor? Am I, am I being critiqued by my deacons? Am I being critiqued by the church members? It's by the Lord. He is the one that evaluates. So therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. See, you're going to do a terrible job judging everything anyway because you don't have all the facts. And based on the partial facts, you're, you're you know, coming up with a crummy judgment anyway. God's going to bring out all the facts and He knows the heart process behind the things. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. See, here's the praise after the fact the post-judgment praise that comes once all the uh, filth has burned away. So I can appreciate that. Hebrews 4. Mentioned this earlier. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and verse 13. That's not what I would mention earlier. What I mentioned earlier was from chapter 12. 
Let me grab that real quick and then we'll finish up with Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 12 we're told that uh, discipline is important. So on my way to Hebrews 4.12 I'll start with Hebrews 12.4. How about that? Just spin the numbers around. and It's a sanctified dyslexia when you can swap the numbers around. and You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. You should embrace it. You should crave it. You should just know every time He spanks you it's because He loves you. Now thank you, Father. I am so loved. (laughs) Okay? For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Thank you, Lord. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Rhetorical question. The son whom he does not love. If he loved you, he would discipline you, or he would acknowledge you, or he would claim you. If he doesn't love you, and if he doesn't claim you, he's saying, you're not my son. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says, you're just a bastard. You're not an heir. That's the tough language of this text. I know we don't use those terms anymore. We should. And uh, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline seems uh, for the moment not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it. See, it's actually educational. It's the, uh, they call that the, the board of education. It gets applied to the seat of learning. The, uh, those that have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's a benefit to that kind of discipline. All right. Now flip the numbers back in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. That's pretty deep. That's about as deep as you can get. It's the infinity of deepness. There is nowhere that it doesn't reach. That's how sharp that sword is. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So suppress it all you want, hide it all you want, bury it as deep as you want, the Word of God's still going to dig it out. The Word of God's going to get there. There is no creature hidden from His sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All judgments been given to the Son. And He knows about it already because He paid for it on the cross. It's like hiding something from Him when He's already paid for it. He knows all about it. He knows all about it. Father, I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for judgment. We welcome the judgment. If we can embrace the temporal judgments more and sooner, then that uh, is going to have an effect at the eternal judgment, Father. By embracing the temporal judgments here and now and being corrected, have, remedying these, these uh, shortcomings, these failures, then we can have corrective action and we can, um, we can proceed on a better basis. We can lay up more fruit. Father, uh, the benefits just multiply eternally, infinitely. So Father, we do want to keep short accounts. We do not want to waste 
fritter away the time and carnality. We don't want to be um, pursuing the, uh, the wrong items, Father, whereby we become engaged in a crusader arrogance and we get caught up in things that are not fruitful. And uh, all of that is, is wasted time, whereby we, uh, we suffer the double compound discipline, Father, because we see all our human viewpoint production burned up and then we also see the divine production that we should have been engaged in in all of those pursuits. So, Father, uh, it's just uh, it's a powerful lesson. I pray that you would open our eyes to see it and to understand it. And I uh, ask that we might uh, embrace it sooner rather than later, Father, because the time past is, is sufficient. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.